Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Changes with me, Annie McManus. This is the podcast where I discuss all things change, how to deal with it when it arrives, how to move through it, how to affect it. It's a vast topic and it's very fun to explore. My guest today is Bernadine Evaristo, an author and an activist and an all-round incredibly inspiring woman. We recorded this conversation at the end of July. Um, Cannot wait to finally share it with you. Last year, Bernadine became the first black woman and the first black British author to win the Booker Prize with her novel Girl, Woman, Other, which is told in the voices of 12 different but interconnected characters, mostly women, black and British. The book is different. From the very first page, it reads different. There's a kind of fluidity to the way she writes. She's not really conforming to the traditional structures of of writing, you know, when it comes to punctuation and that kind of thing. Sometimes the book reads more like poetry. I found it really refreshing from the beginning. It's got a really light touch to it as a read. It flows really beautifully. And um, the characters, even though I read it a long time ago, maybe a year ago now, um, the characters have really stuck with me. Some of them I just care for and think about often, which I think is a sign of an amazing author, is when you can write characters that the reader just really feels passionate about. Bernadine has written eight books in total, as well as writing poetry, literary criticism, and she's written for radio and theatre drama as well. This huge recent success with the booker has come to her much later in life, and she is loving it. In her own words, she feels unstoppable. That's one of the things I wanted to ask her about in the conversation. Uh, Bernadine is Professor of Creative Writing at Brunel University in London and a staunch and long-standing activist and advocate for artists and writers of colour. Again, we will speak of this. I wanted to speak to her, of course, because that's what this podcast is, about the changes in her life. And we discuss her childhood growing up in Woolwich in South London as one of eight and also a very toxic relationship that Bernadine Dean talks about very openly here and how that affected her and of course the changes she hopes for in the future as well which she is very clear in what she wants so let's get on with the conversation I hope this will be as inspiring for you as it was for me enter the podcast Bernadine Evaristo let's start with your childhood what was it like growing up in Woolwich in South London in the 60s and 70s it was boring. Um, it was not the Woolwich that it is today. It was a squaddy town. And we were a mixed race family. My father was Nigerian, my mother English. They got married in the 50s, had eight children in 10 years. And we, we kind of were the bogey family in the streets because we were, we were the only black family in the area. There were lots of us and we lived in this um, very big, rundown house that 
my my dad was always going to do it up but he never did my mum was very busy raising kids and then she was um also a school teacher so she went back to teaching when the youngest was of school age and there was a strong feeling of being an outsider in that area that you know we, we used to get our windows smashed in and there, there were racist and it was in the 70s the time of the national front and so there was an element of fear there um, but at the same time there was also a kind of suburban safety as well as 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 was the case in the 60s and 70s you would go to the shops on your own and not you know I didn't worry about anybody attacking me and and mm. um my mother uh she had been um called names when she met first met my dad but you know when she walked down the street with her her gaggle of mixed race children nobody called us names or attacked us or anything um i think it was very different experience perhaps with my brothers when they were teenagers because i think they're often in the firing line of racism my father was very strict nigerian and he didn't let us play out on the streets because that may seem strange to millennials now because children don't play on the street now do they most <laughs> in most places but in the 60s and 70s children did you know i have friends who would say to me that their parents let them go out at sort of nine o'clock in the morning in the summer and they'd turn up again at five o'clock in the evening. And the parents... That was me. That, that was, was me you. on Wednesday. Yeah. Yeah. So my, you... mom would, my mom would shout, bath time, about six o'clock. <laughs> and that would be the end of my play day. Yeah. Yeah. So you just roam free. Well, we weren't allowed to do that because my dad was... Um, I think he was essentially really scared to let us out yeah. because he had come into a very hostile country. As you can imagine, 1949, he arrived and he, sure. he lived through the 50s. And so we had a big old garden and we would we could play there. And I um, got into reading and went to the library. That was my entertainment. What aspects of your character do you think have been forged from being part of this large kind of gaggle, as you say, of children? It's very interesting because people often think that I come from an own, I'm an only child. That, Why? That, yeah, because I think you create a sort of a sphere of space around yourself, which you have to do mm. when you're growing up in a family of 10 people. And, I sh you know, we all shared bedrooms. I had shared a bedroom with my younger sister. So you learn, I think, how to... You actually perhaps become even more independent as a person. I think I did. Because you just learn to protect your space because you have to. Because there's mm. so many people all the time. And if I was now put into a house with nine other people, I would just, I would just be completely frazzled all the time because I'm so used to not having that. But when I grew up with that, A, a it was normal and it was natural, but I, did, I do think I have this kind of um, self-protective kind of atmosphere that I give off. And then I had four, uh, three older siblings. So I think my elder sister, for example, took, she was the one who had to be really responsible. And then, and then the other two, whereas because I was like, you know, the fourth child, I think I got away with not having to assume that responsibility. But at the same time, I wasn't the really cute younger ones. And there were some really cute, I wasn't a cute child. I was, I was a little dumpling, right? Yeah. A big chin, a little dumpling. <laughs> and my mum said that I um, had a lot of character and it really annoyed her because I, I, I under, but I understand where she's coming from. I was too exuberant. I completely understand where she's coming. You've got eight children. You don't want somebody who's going to be just all over the place. You need them yeah. to be controlled. So like my dad needed to control his brood. And yeah. so did my mother. And then she had somebody like me 
who was less easy to control. And she found okay. that more difficult. Yeah. Did you find you had to fight for your parents' attention or kind of, or also did you look to your older siblings for advice and for guidance and for help? I must have, I must have looked to my older siblings at some stage, but I don't remember my teenage years doing that. Yeah. But fighting for our parents' attention, well, my dad didn't really talk to us. So he was not only this very strict authoritarian man who had come from another culture that we didn't understand, where that would have probably been quite normal, but he also only talked to us when he was telling us off. So we didn't really have a close relationship with him. And I, I think there must have been a, a time when I was really young when I would have wanted his affection. But mm. from, from the time that I remember, sort of when I was kind of like more conscious of everything going on around me, I don't remember wanting his attention. Because actually he was a disciplinarian and I, I didn't want to be disciplined. But with my mother, I think we did fight for her attention. So she used to like to ha like having her feet massaged and her back stretched. So after she'd finished all her duties, obviously, you know, eight kids, 10 years, a lot on, and then going back to teaching. So yeah. she went back to teaching when I was about nine, I guess. Wow. And then there were four after me and, and, and three above me. She would, once she'd finished everything, she'd sit down and watch the telly with us, which is usually towards the end of whatever time we were supposed to go to bed, you know, the end of the, our evening. And she used to love having her feet massaged. And we used to fight to massage her feet, which I think is very sweet. I love having my yes. feet massaged. Yeah. I kind of yeah. thrust them in front of my husband every, <laughs> every evening. And I, you know, kind of um, move, move my toes. Waving your toes. And he's like... Yeah. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Let's talk about the first big change then. What would you say is, is the most significant change you went through in childhood? Yes, I'd like to, I'd like to talk about some trauma, but um, I think the most important thing was going to the youth theatre. Yeah. And it was called Greenwich Young People's Theatre. And many years later, it changed its name to Greenwich and Lewisham Young People's Theatre. And now it's called Tramshed. So it's still going all these years later. And I'm now a patron of it, which wow. is... Yeah, I'll just so it's like come full circle. That. Yeah, that's lovely. Absolutely. Yeah. I went there from the age of 12 and it changed my life, totally changed my life. I am so passionate about these kinds of extracurricular activities that should be made available for children that are affordable. And it was affordable, so affordable. I can't remember how much because we had no money in our family. You know, my dad was a welder and he lost his job when he was 15 because he was a political animal and he was a shop steward in the factory he was a local worked. mp wasn't he he not, not mp no uh, uh, his a councillor he was sorry a, yeah he was a, a councillor he was the first black councillor in greenwich yeah. I'm very proud to say yeah. in the 70s and he had been a, a his job was as a welder and he'd worked in factories and he was a shop steward and he campaigned for the workers to get air conditioning installed in the factory yeah. And the bosses got rid of him in the end. So, so he was unemployed. And my mother was a school teacher. Obviously, loads of kids. We didn't have any money. But the youth theatre was affordable. It was probably like threepence or something. Yeah. And it was affordable because I didn't get pocket money or anything. Couldn't afford it. But my parents paid for that. And it was a space where everybody was welcome. And I felt very welcome there. Yeah. Even though I was the only black girl there for most of my time there. I was the only black girl at school for most of my time there. I still felt incredibly welcome and it was a creative space where you did, it was, a, it was about collaboration because theatre, especially youth theatre is about collaboration. 
the kids just got on. It was a space where the, the people who were running the youth theatre, they were called Bowsprit Theatre and Education Company, where they created a very kind of equal space and a space where you didn't feel that you were being judged, through, even with your performances. Yeah. Nobody said, oh, that's no good or rubbish. You know, you just did what you did and you felt that you were valued for what you did. And I began to go and see theatre, um, which I still do to this day. And also I mixed with different kinds of children. So suddenly I was mixing with children who were from a different class, from, you know, really kind of quite rich areas of London, and also who had kind of post-hippie values. And that was great for me because, it, again, it was a, it's a, a kind of social group where I, I felt a little bit intimidated because I was working class, but where... I was welcomed, I made really great friends that I have to this day and where I just became a much more kind of cultured person, even at a very young age. How did acting make you feel? It was fun, I enjoyed it. Certainly acting makes you feel valued if people are liking what you do. And, you know, I I, I got involved in theatre at school and I, I play Cats and Cats in Under Milkwood in the school play. And that was the point at which I decided to be an actor. I was 14, so I'd already been at the youth theatre a couple of years. And I remember there was this hushed reverence in the audience, isn't it? This 14-year-old black girl in white school playing Captain Cat, Welsh, old Welsh sea captain. And, yeah. But somehow it, it went down really well. And I loved it, absolutely loved it. Yeah. And, that, and that, I think, was the experience at the youth theatre, that you were just being appreciated for your creativity. That's a wonderful thing to have as a young person. How did your family, um, and your mom and dad, react to this this kind of big decision at fourteen? Like, I'm going to be an actor now. And my mum said to me, "Well, you should learn how to type, so you've got something to fall back on." <laughs> so and pragmatic, actually, she, I love it. Actually, she was right. She yeah. was really right. Yeah. But I was appalled at the suggestion. It was like, "How dare you? I'm going to be an actor. How dare you?" you know, tell me that I need to, uh, that I might end up as a typist or a secretary. Of course, I became a writer, so I, I, I it really did work. Have to type. <laughs> I, well, I never, I never, I never learned to type properly. So right. I just taught myself and I can't, even today I can't do it properly. Yeah. So my mum was, they were supportive. Yeah. I think also when you come from a large family, there isn't the pressure right. that there might be if there's just one or two of you to, to sort of do what your parents want you to do. Mm-hmm. I don't ever remember my parents telling me that I, I I couldn't do it. So you you kind of carried on from school, didn't you? And kind of kept working in theatre and creating theatre. How was that period of your life when you look back on it? I've been writing about it recently, actually, and I I loved it. I love that creative life. And I've led that creative life ever since. Um, And it's, it's, it's the best. It's the best. I wouldn't I've never wanted to do anything else. And what happened was I did go to drama school for three years. Absolutely loved it. Rose Bruford College of Speech and Drama. That's what it was called then. And it's still there in Sidcup in this this beautiful old house in a park by a lake. There were five black women in my year, which was amazing, uh, including myself. And so we got together and started creating theatre about being black women. And then left school, three of us formed Theatre of Black Women. Uh, Myself, Patricia Hilaire um, and... Paulette Randall, who's still a theatre director and directs for telly. And was that a first, Bernadine? It was a first, yes. It was Britain's first Black Women's Theatre Company. And we put on our own shows and didn't know, we didn't really know what we were doing. 
when I think about it, we were 20, I was 22, the others were 21. Um, yeah. So really, really young, but loads of energy and guts and self-motivation. We got funding, we, we wrote the plays ourselves in, in the early years, and then eventually, as we got more funding, we'd bring in other writers. Jackie Kay was somebody who wrote for us, her first play was for us. And then we brought in other actors, and towards the end, I ended up being the person running the theatre company. Right. And at that point, it got too much. I, it wasn't what I'd set out to do. And we lost our funding. And we could have fought for our funding, but I just thought, oh, that's it. How did you find then from there the courage to write your first book? Like, Where did, where did your first book come from? Was it, was it planned? Did it just happen quickly? How did it form? So, the, so while I was writing for theatre, I was also writing poetry. So I discovered that I loved poetry. So I was reading and writing poetry. And actually, my theatre plays were... It was kind of like performance art, so it was very experimental. But it, it was written in verse. So the, the poetry had been with me since I was at drama school. Mm. And the individual poems that I wrote over a period of 10 years then formed my first poetry collection. And that was called Island of Abraham, and it was published in 94. So... At some stage, I looked at all the poems I'd written and thought, well, I've got a collection here. Let me mm. find a publisher. And I did. And my first book was published. It wasn't really that I had to find the confidence to be a writer. Yeah. It was more that I was writing. And I yeah. was also publishing anthologies. And I, I edited an anthology with some other black women at one point. And then I had it. I had it there and tried to get it published and eventually did get the book published. Was it hard to get it published? I, I sent it out to 10 poetry publishers. So this is, this is a huge problem with diversity in publishing in this country. Yeah. It's still yeah. around today. And it's part of my literary activism has been about that. And can you imagine in the 90s, it was even Well, worse. that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah they weren't interested. Been. There were some writers who came up in the 80s who had broken through, but it was very hard if you weren't kind of connected. And at the point at which I was trying to get a book published. I, I wasn't in the poetry world. I wasn't in the literature world. I'd come out of the theatre world, left that behind. So I wasn't connected at all. And also I was writing about the African diasporas, writing about travelling in Africa, and they weren't interested. They all said no. And so then I went back and kind of looked at the manuscript that I'd sent them, which, to be honest, it was rubbish, in the sense that it was really badly typed and really messy. And I thought, OK... I've got to present this differently. So I then kind of cleaned up the text. Mm. This was when you used to write things on, on a computer, sorry, on a typewriter and not a computer. Mm. And so it wasn't so easy to, to produce clean yeah. manuscripts. I used to use Tipex, you remember, to Tipex yeah. out, tip-ex yeah, out yeah, the yeah. mistakes and then type over it. So I, I then represented a much better manuscript which had some kind of order to it and sequence and again, sent it to 10 poetry publishers and only one of them accepted. And that was People Tree Press. And People Tree Press was then quite a new publisher based up in, in the north, in Leeds. And they were very interested in publishing poetry by people in the Caribbean and in, in India. But they'd also said that they were interested in black British writing. And so mm. they took me. And it kind of made sense that they would be the ones to do that because mm. they were already publishing writers of colour.
Can we talk about the biggest change in your adulthood now? The biggest change was that I had, or at least the most formative experience for me in terms of my early life was that I had this really toxic relationship and it was with a woman actually and it was very uh, damaging I think for me but at the same time I have to say that I don't think we should ever blame the other person for for these kinds of toxic relationships where we have a choice to leave and of course I did I mean not everybody has a choice to leave and certainly in some countries there's absolutely no choice but I think for me in my British culture, I could have left this very damaging relationship and I didn't. So before the relationship, I was this theatre maker, you know, really um, making the most of my life and I had a lot to say. And through the period of this relationship, I became almost mute in that I stopped believing in myself and I lost my confidence and I really did lose it. I got it back afterwards, but I lost it. And the relationship lasted five years, so it was uh, a long time, especially when you're, you go into something at the age of 25 and you come out at the age of 30, and the relationship has been dysfunctional for most of that time. But it was my choice, as I say, because I, I, I never want to present myself as a victim. It was my choice to stay in that relationship. But I do think I was brainwashed as well. <laughs> what, was there a point when you became aware? Because a lot of these times you're not really aware of the toxicity around you. Yeah, that's Something true. Something clicks. What was there that, a clicking point? That's true, actually, because, you know, you meet somebody and you have this relationship and you're just, you know, sort of you think you're well, you are. You are in love with this person and especially if they're a lot older than you as this person was and then suddenly it's like you're losing yourself without really realizing it and then it's like you've lost yourself so much it's almost too late to leave I think the 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 clicking point for me was that we used to travel a lot by car across Europe at one point to the Middle East and we had this huge row in um, eastern Turkey and we were driving down to Kuwait to catch a boat to Australia, which of course was never going to happen because you can't, you couldn't even do that at that stage. Anyway, so it was all very crazy, um, but fun to a certain extent. And we had this row, and um, this person uh, pushed me out the car. Essentially, they were driving, and um, while and... it was moving, no, no, no. Okay, right. <laughs> I just wanted to clarify kind that. Pushed me out the car, and and then. And then as I ran towards the car to get back in, and this was in eastern Turkey, which is like some kind of moonscape, lunarscape, right? It's just empty. There's sort of, there are almost no cars on the road apart from oil tankers driving towards, um, uh, fr- driving towards the oil Kuwait. fields of Iraq. Yeah. So oh. it's like completely abandoned for miles and miles and miles and miles. And every time I ran towards the car, she would move on. So that I, it was just like torture. I think that was probably the point at which I, I realised this had to stop. But I didn't, I didn't escape for another year or so. But um, yeah. How did you escape? <laughs> oh, we came back to London eventually. And it was just an absolute nightmare at that stage. The relationship was terrible, 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 terrible. And a flat came up. A friend offered me a flat. She, she knew what the situation was and... She actually had a housing association flat and she was moving um, out of London and she didn't want to give up the flat, which was really cheap. And so I became her kind of, you know, sort of, what do you call it? Sub, is it subtenant? What's that? Yeah. Um, yeah. Subtenant. Yeah. 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 So I escaped. 
and actually have became so strong after that. You know, once I'd recovered, took a few years to recover, I was so strong. The person you see before you now is, I think, partly because I went through that. Because I, I, I experienced what it was to lose yourself in a relationship and then to decide that would never happen again. And my strength came back a hundredfold. And so it was, in, in one sense, it was a good thing for me. I lost my power, then I valued my power. You know, I, and I learnt, my voice came back and I became this person who is, I think, unstoppable and have been for a very long time. Yeah, you can see it. You exude it. <laughs> Honestly, I've I've, wa- I've watched I've watched so many interviews with you, and the one thing that always strikes me is this really, really ap- like apparent sense of um, just sense of self and sense of like strength. And and it, you know what's weird is that I find it sadly rare when you see mm. women in a public forum talking so confidently about their work, not being afraid to to enjoy their triumphs and 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 bask in them rather than being that kind of default humble mm. bashful kind of apologetic self i've really noticed that with well you. i'll tell you what two things one is that i've been doing a lot of public speaking for uh, since my first book was published 94 so i'm really used to public speaking i'm not always comfortable mm. doing it to be honest and i've certainly had to get used to doing things on the screen because i've hardly done that at all until i won the booker i hadn't done any screen work really mm. so on television i did have the experience of talking a lot and i have i'm somebody who has toured a lot as a writer all over the world for the last 20 years you know you can dump me in the middle of anywhere and i will start talking and somehow the words will make sense so mm. I have that experience. And then I have the fact that I'm 61, right? And the fact that I have been in the arts for so long, for 40 years, and I have been not at the centre of anything, but I have seen other people at the centre of things, especially the guys, right? Whether it's question time, whether it's giving their opinion on the radio, in every way possible, I have seen the patriarchy at work. So now that I've got this opportunity, I feel I am going to exploit it to its full because it is my right to be here just as it's your right to be doing what you're doing. Look at LBC. You know, I actually love James O'Brien and I love a couple of the, the DJs, not DJs, the, um, the hosts. But yes. it's, it's, it's all white guys, right? And that's, that's the default and that's reality. And, and nobody even talks about it because we just kind of, we're kind of resigned to it. So mm. I think... Because I've been given this opportunity, because of the booker, and the fact that I have this long track record, and the fact that I've been around so long, has all been thrown into the mix, where I do feel an entitlement to say what I have to say. Because these things need to be said, and they need to be said. I'm very much a champion of black British women. You know, I can't champion everybody, although of course I believe in diversity in all its forms. But... I'm choosing to champion them in particular right now because I feel that we need to we need to have more exposure, we need to have more opportunities, and I'm just fed up with the discrimination. And if I can express this through the, through my new platforms, uh, or rather the new um, high profile platforms, then then I'm going to do it. And so I guess that's what you're seeing. And then mm. you're seeing my absolute enjoyment at winning the Booker. 
Yeah, it's that. It's the enjoyment which, as well. Which, you know, the people, unashamed enjoyment. It is. Like, yes. It, it totally is. And people say to me, oh, but, you know, sometimes when people have these breakthroughs, they're really kind of like, they feel very stressed and, you know, they, yeah. they feel like everybody wants something from them and, and you know, they don't want to, they want to they do all the media and the rest of it. And I'm like, well, probably because they haven't spent 40 years in the wings, right? <laughs> they usually they usually break through very young in their 20s, right? And suddenly they've done something. It's an album mm. or it's a book right. and the world is falling at their feet. And they are probably, and through no fault of their own, yeah. probably taking it for granted. Because if it happens to you very early on, you think, oh, well, you do. This, this is, yeah, mm. I'm entitled yeah. to this. This is the reality. Um, whereas with me, it hasn't been like that. So I, I think I think it's my duty to enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> and you've, I mean, you've really sacrificed a lot financially as well for this, haven't you? I have, yes, yeah. yeah. I've, I've earned very little money in my in my time. And my first two books, I haven't talked about this really. Um, I didn't receive any advances for them. There's a thing going on at the moment called Publishing Pay Me. No, Publishing Paid Me, which is a hashtag that went viral a couple of weeks ago through Black Lives Matter, and it was where writers of all kind of backgrounds were talking about how much they'd been paid. And it became evident that there was a disparity yeah. between what black writers had been paid here and in the UK and what they'd been paid in America. But, you know, the truth is I didn't actually get paid anything for my first two books. But that, again, was a choice I made. It's also ignorance. I, I, my first publisher was a small publisher. They couldn't afford to pay advances. They would pay royalties, but not advances. But I don't think, I think it took about 20 years to get to the stage where there were any royalties because the book just, you know, just didn't sell. And then my second publisher, again, was an even smaller publisher, so they couldn't afford to pay advances. And then eventually that second book, Lara, was published by Blood Axe Books, who are a very big poetry publisher, and that's a very different story. But it was a choice. I just wanted, I wanted my work to be out there and I wanted it to be published. I didn't understand the industry, not even with my second book. I didn't understand that, if you go with a very small unknown publisher that you're very likely to get almost no exposure, that it's going to be hard to get your books into bookshops. That was the reality. And then I've, you know, I haven't earned a lot of money since, not until I, I went to Brunel University and became a professor there. And suddenly I had a salary because I've never yeah. had a salary before. Yeah. So, but yeah. that's, that's the choice I made. And that was an investment in the life that I wanted. And so I don't regret it at all and now I'm in a very very different situation how has winning the booker changed you has it changed you as a person as a person no I mean, inside it's changed me, but not in terms of how I live my life. And I think that's something that people do say who know me. Oh, you're just the same. I still have friends who, when we meet up, they just talk about themselves nonstop. And I'm thinking, <laughs> do you realise I'm number one? <laughs> do you realise I've been number one for five weeks? <laughs> Let me just take... I just want... Sorry to interrupt, but can I just show you the Sunday Times bestseller list? Because... Like, <laughs> But, you know, that's very, it's very, it's very humbling, but it's also very normal. Yeah, right? it's, it's kind of, it's kind of good for you, isn't it? When you have good friends who don't, 
who yeah don't, they're not suddenly yeah, looking put you at, on a pedestal yeah they're not yeah. looking at me with twinkly eyes saying yeah, oh, yeah. Bernadine aren't you wonderful these days <laughs> they're just carrying on business as usual you know yeah. my, my domestic life is exactly the same you know all the boring domestic SH1T still do it same yeah. relationship with my husband who is really enjoying this with me and that's just yeah. you know I'm just feel so, I feel yeah. so lucky to have that and then um but then there's the career aspect, which actually has has taken off even more during lockdown. So I've been right. here at home, not going anywhere, but actually it's the book's been selling, you know, in a wonderful way. And so that so that so my career has changed exponentially and how people view me as a writer outside of my own personal uh, social circle and family has changed enormously. So yeah. Yeah, it's that's I, I mean, I, I, you know, again, I enjoy that. It's it's to be enjoyed, I think. Is there some internal vindication, though? You know, because you you've always you've done affirmations, right, where you've kind of said to yourself, I'm going to win this one day, I'm going to win this. But is there something that's changed inside you on winning it? Do you feel vindicated personally? Totally, like, totally, yeah. totally. And it's yeah. it's like if I'd have known I'd have reached this point after 40 years in the arts, I don't know what I would have thought. I would have been very impatient. If somebody said to me 40 years ago, or even when I published my first book 26 years ago, Bernadine, one day you're go- you are going to win the Booker Prize and you know, your book's going to sell around the world and you know, you're going to do very well from it. I probably would have been desperate to, to reach this point. But actually, I wouldn't have reached this point because yeah. I, I've been so driven, so driven, and it's just been my own motivation, my own self-motivation, and it's been my creative drive just to be creative and to be a voice in the world. Mm. So um, for it to come now, it just feels that the journey I've taken to get here is absolutely the journey I needed to take. And also to have the, the publisher that I've had, Simon Prosser, Hamish Hamilton at Penguin, he has published me for 20 years. The novel Girl, Woman, Other is a result of him publishing all my other books. And a lot of people don't get to stay with their publishers for 20 years. Often they get dropped because if their books aren't selling enough, they're dropped. My books weren't selling much, but I was never dropped. So that then became a kind of safe house for me to, uh, to experiment, right. which is what the novel is. To exp- uh, the novel is really, even though people might look at it now as this sort of kind of commercial success, and it is, it is a radical experimental novel with a load of queer women in it. <laughs> That's what it is. Mm. And that, that book, if it had been presented um, to other publishers, I, I think they probably would have turned it down. Oh, no, no, no. Because my, my previous book, Mr. Lover Man, was considered triple niche. Triple you know? niche. Wow. Triple ni- oh, yeah. Triple. Oh, no, no. Triple niche. It's a, an old man, a black man, and a gay man. Yeah, I'm reading it right now. Yeah, yeah so that's like triple niche. So it's yeah. like, if you're not, what does that mean? If you're not white, maybe middle class and straight, everything, everything else is yeah. kind of yeah. niche. Yeah. Whereas actually, stories are stories, and readers want stories, and they want all kinds of stories. But they've been denied the range of stories that they could have had up to now in the British publishing industry because it's been too narrow. I feel like you, you, I mean, just your very existence in the publishing industry is, is, is subversive, but the way that you write this fusion fiction that, that, we, that we see in Girl, Woman, Other, it's so interesting how you write, you know, I've never seen writing like that before with the no full stops or a few, and, and 
Have you ever been told, I'm sorry, Bernadine, that's just not how we do it. That's just not how it's done. Maybe it's because you have this no, publisher. No, maybe. Yeah. I think so. I think so. Uh, yeah, no, I haven't been told that. I haven't been told that. I think you have to be, to write the kind of books I write, which are experimental. And yeah, you're right. It's a fusion fiction, not many full stops. But don't let that put you off, readers. Or no, God, listeners. no. Uh, because it's It reads readable. easier, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, so I think you have to be very bloody-minded anyway to be in the arts because you're always putting yourself out there mm. and, and also having to endure periods where nobody's interested in your work as well. Think of actors. I always think of actors as an example of how hard it can be in the arts. You can be the most amazingly talented actor, but actually you go five years and nobody wants to employ you. And with creative writing, I think you, for you to be somebody who believes that you have a voice and that what you have to say is interesting and that you can tell stories does mean that you have a certain level of confidence and I think bloody mindedness in order to do that. Mm. And I have it in huge doses because the other books did break through and like two of them, two of them were novels in verse and one was a novel with verse and one was a, a slavery role reversal novel. And then there's this, which is this, you know, experimental fusion fiction. And so to produce all these books and also not to break through, so not to get the kind of val mainstream validation that one might want, yeah. I think takes a huge amount of um, tenacity and resolve. And I think that's a really good quality to have if you're in the arts, mm. because at some point you're going to need it. Mm. And if you have to develop it earlier in your life, as I had to, much earlier, even when I was working in theatre, because nobody was interested us, in us in, in the 1980s, you know, that the... the the, the kinds of coverage that young, diverse people get in the media today is just, was just not exist in existence. There mm. was no sense of anyone being interested in what we were doing apart from a few people around us. So you develop those skills that you need, those lifelong skills that you need to succeed eventually or to just continue doing what you're doing. How are you finding um, the, the kind of transition into... Uh, the movie world like having a book that is going to be made into a a visual yeah that must be a whole new world to navigate it is it's um so so girl woman other has been optioned for television and right. mr loverman has been in development for television for a while so so not quite movies um sorry well bad. no that's yeah. that's all right yeah. but um I find it, it's, it's exciting and a bit scary. Are, are you writing the plays? Are you, no, are you kind of, no, 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 you're allowing other people to screen. I did, I did develop Mr. Loverman to f a first script level. Mm. Sorry, first episode screenplay level with uh, the BBC, but then they turned it down and mm. it was a big job transitioning from being a writer on the page to somebody working on the screen. I would never also, do that for, again. Also, like the way you write, which is right inside someone's head. Yeah. Like then having to totally flip your POV yes. to looking at them rather than looking out from, like, it must be such an it's, interesting way. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very difficult. Also, I'm a, I'm a very visual writer. I love describing things, but actually you don't need that when you're writing for the screen right. because yeah. the visuals are there, there already. yeah. So, yeah, so I dipped my toes in it and I decided it wasn't for me. And I didn't particularly enjoy the process either, to be honest. Um, because, yeah. you know, when you're writing for screen, it's a very collaborative process. And suddenly to be sort of um, 
brainstorming ideas was just a bit alien to me at this stage. And you know, that's yeah. what I'd done years ago, but it'd been so long, so many years had passed. And in terms of the television adaptation of Girl, Woman, Other, I, I'm just like, okay, a little bit scared, but also I just love the idea of, of those 12 actresses plus more. Or, yeah. you know, one is non-binary, so one isn't a woman. Um, being cast, because there are so yeah. many terrific actresses out there, and then having their time in the, in the limelight, I think that's so exciting. It's wonderful. How, how when you wrote Girl, Woman, Other... How did you manage to keep those 12 people like alive in your head? There's so much to remember about each woman, each character, from the bloody earrings they wear to what they're like. How did you administrate it? Yeah. Just like the pragmatic element of, of knowing who's who. How did you deal with that at the time? Yeah, so I wrote them one by one. I'm very good at compa- right. com- compartmentalization. Can't even say the word. So I, I started with one character finish their section and then move to the other character. Okay. So at any one time, all I had to think about in the initial stages was the particular character I was writing. Do you have like character sheets or like do you? No, no, no. Just in your head. I have maybe some notes. Maybe I do a bit of mind mapping, but it's really in my head. And then, so moving from one to the other to the other. And don't forget, it did take five years. So I had time to kind of process each character and then when it came to revising, and because there are so many degrees of connection between all these women, when, when I was revising, I then had to think very, uh, it was hard. It was very hard yeah. to work out at what stage different characters were in each other's stories. Yeah. So those timelines... Because they kind of bleed the, in, don't they? Yes, those yeah. timelines were really difficult. So I'd have a character at one stage in a story, and then I'd write their section... And I'd have to marry, the, I'd have to synchronise the different timelines. And I can't yeah. tell you how difficult that was it to was do. The, that sounds such a head fuck. really like... was. Total <laughs> head fuck. I'm glad we can say head fuck. <laughs> yes. We can. Oh, good. Yeah. yeah. And then just the historical aspects and the factual aspects. Just, just the, I'm just in awe of, of how much you covered in that one book. Yeah, so because it's because each woman has her own section, yeah, and because it's written in the fusion fiction, I think it allowed me to get a lot in about each woman. So you're right. So there's like there's somebody who's ninety three, and we follow. I loved her, Hattie. Hattie. I loved Hattie. her. She was my favorite, Aww. all barefoot in the mud. I loved <laughs> yeah. her. Yeah, she's definitely one of my favorites. So you know, you have Hattie, and I've got to get in ninety three years of her life, right? But yeah. that that form allowed me to do that, and then her mother, Grace getting in the extent of most of her life. And then, and then you've got Yaz. I mean, Yaz is very easy to do because she's mm. only 19. So then exploring her life through like 30 pages, mm. it really did allow me to pile in so much about each woman. Mm. So when you read it, I guess, you do think, oh my God, I'm in 1950s Cornwall. I'm in 19th century Northumberland or Newcastle. I'm in 21st century Barbados. I'm in yeah. Nigeria in the 60s and 70s. It's so vast. It is. It's amazing. What change would you still like to affect in your life right now? Not necessarily personal change, but is there anything else you want to change about what's going on? Yeah, society. It could do the real, right. it could do the real change. <laughs> <laughs> but you're I, doing everything you can. I really am. I really am. I think the most important thing is that we need a, we need an egalitarian society we just need it to be do you think it's 
Do you think it's achievable? Probably not, no. Mm. Because I think people, I think hierarchies exist for a reason and I think people are tribal. tribal. But we've come a long way in my lifetime. We have mm. come a long way. We know that there was, we've got so far to go, but we know, just look at Parliament, representation of women or, or people of colour in Parliament. I mean, all mm. of that has happened in my lifetime. But at the same time, the status quo is really slow to change in so many ways. And I would like to see it just become, just to get rid of discrimination, just to see more equality of opportunity for everybody and to, yeah, to work towards a utopia that we'll never reach, but to at least try, try and get there and for everybody to be on board with it. Not only those people who are most affected by the various issues that are around for everybody. So for men to take the lead with feminist issues, for Absolutely. white people to take the lead with issues around race, for able-bodied people to take the lead um, on issues around disability, and for straight people to engage with queer politics, for us all to work together on it, rather than always being the people who are having to shout because we are the ones most disadvantaged by whatever system is in place. Amen. <laughs> pulpit this Yay! is amazing um so what's next you said you're really busy what's next uh I, I will start a new novel next year i have not wow. had time to think this year literally it's like one thing to the next so yeah starting a new novel next year and i, I think things might i always say this my husband always laughs i say you know i think the autumn's going to be really quiet and he's like mm, you always <laughs> say that so yeah time to read time to write time to think yeah. that that would be my dream at the moment. Yeah. Well, I wish you I wish you all that time and I'm so grateful for your time thank today. You. Thank you. Well, it's been a great interview. Thanks so much. Oh, thanks, Bernadine. <laughs> thank you so much to Bernadine for that incredibly inspiring conversation. Uh, that's just kind of life goals. I feel like Bernadine is goals, isn't she? Just her absolute conviction in what she wants uh, out of her life, out of her professional and personal life her conviction of what she wants from the world, what she expects. I just think she's a, she's a force, isn't she? And I'm glad that she exists in the world of literature and in the world of publishing. And so glad that her book got the deserved attention uh, that it did with the Booker win. I'm just excited for what's next, personally, because I feel like she's only really just starting. Right, the biggest thing here is Girl, Woman, Other. If you have not read it, I presume, I hope that you will be inspired to read it now. There's a link to it in the show notes. Go and get it. Swap it with your friends. Share it around. Give it to your mum. Give it to your aunt. It's just a wonderful read. And thank you for your comments on Susan, who was last week's guest, the lottery winner. She won almost £1.2 million on the lottery. And uh, it was really cool to see your reactions. Thank you to Jenny Bombeni, who says, what a story. Thoroughly enjoyed the listen today. Immediately buys lotto ticket. Um, Sinead Flanagan, I've decided I'm going to win the lottery too. I just say, Sinead, go get your affirmations going. Do what Susan did. Believe. And Penny Ricketts says, dreamt of winning the lottery every day for the past two weeks. I'd go into the office, make it rain, saying, I assume that covers my notice period. See ya. And flounce out. Knowing me, I'd probably trip over something, but a girl can dream. I'm glad that that conversation inspired you all. And also, I think important about that conversation was the kind of big lesson at the end, that even though Susan won all that money, 
there was an element to her that she couldn't make happy, that she couldn't buy with money. And um, that was to do with her self-esteem and her self-worth and, and, and something to do with her skin from when she was a young girl. And um, it just goes to show that you can't really buy self-worth either. That's something you have to work on hard all your life. I like that kind of underlying lesson throughout that conversation as well. Right, if you haven't listened yet, please do. Susan Herdman's story is fantastic. Uh, You can go and get that now, of course. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to this episode. And please let me know what you think. If you related to anything Bernadine said, just put it up on the Instagram. I'd love to hear your thoughts or put a comment or a review on Apple Podcasts as well. I'm going to be back next Monday with Beth Ditto. Beth Ditto uh, was on the covers of magazines way before the word body positivity even was in our kind of contemporary lexicon of language. She is an amazing force when it comes to feminism, activism for women, for LGBTQ+, um, for plus-size people. Uh, she is hilarious. She is a self-confessed redneck from Arkansas, has an incredible story when it comes to her childhood and her changes, and I cannot wait for you to hear our conversation next week. This episode was produced by Louise Mason with support from Abby Hollick through Rethink Audio. Thank you and goodbye. Mwah.